Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains discussions of intersexuality, transgender issues, transphobia, internalised transphobia, homophobia, outdated language with regards to transgender and intersex people, brief cruelty to animals, facial injuries, surgery, war injuries, cruelty to prisoners of war, Nazi atrocities, and some bad language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Did we miss anything? I think that's everything. I think we've covered it. Okay. I'm Hannah. I'm a historian of bad bombs and the even badder bitches who protested them and said, let's get rid of the bombs. Did it work? No. Okay. Kind of. And I'm Nicola. I'm a historian and teacher in training who is a bad bitch herself. And welcome to Women of War, a podcast where we look at the different and unique experiences of women engaging in wartime throughout history. Today, it's a first for us in a lot of ways, actually. Yes, it is our first episode on World War II. It is definitely not that. Okay. Valid. It is our first two-parter episode, but more importantly, it is our first episode involving transgender history and more specifically focusing on a trans woman and the other trans people who came into her orbit, which is an occasionally fraught historical topic, but we ask that you listen to this episode in good faith as we have tried our best. Rebecca Cow is Britain's first known transgender woman to undergo a sex change surgery, what we call now gender reassignment or gender affirmment surgery. Before this, she was a World War II fighter pilot and a racing car driver. Roberta wrote her own biography, Roberta Cow's Story, by herself in the early 1950s. As transgender activism and politics were in their infancy and not really in Roberta's field of interest, throughout the book she uses her birth name, the name a lot of trans people would now call their dead name, to refer to herself before her transition as well as male pronouns. As Roberta began her transition, she then began to use the name Roberta and female pronouns. Michael Dillon, a transgender man who was a contemporary of Roberta's, approached his writing about himself in the same way, just in reverse. Though this is usually not how people do it now, in respect to how Roberta and Michael referred to themselves, we are using the pronouns as Roberta put them out in her own biography. We mean no offence, but we want to be as respectful as possible to Roberta and Michael, and that means using the language through which they viewed themselves, and also the language that their main medical man, Dr Harold Gillies, used to describe the surgeries they would undergo. We are, however, not going to use their dead names unless we are quoting something that uses them. Historical studies of trans people can often bring up a lot of strong feelings. This sort of history is made difficult by the fact that the terms we use now to describe gender, sexuality, identity, etc. were not terms used by historical figures to describe themselves. In historical study, there is a debate about using modern terms to describe historical people and situations. Some argue that doing this puts modern ideas onto historical figures and defines them in ways that they would not have defined themselves. This is particularly apparent in transgender histories because it can be difficult to determine a person's identity when they do not use the words we use today to describe it, either because they didn't have the words or because defining themselves in such a way could be dangerous in a period that was not accepting of different people. So, take for example someone who was assigned female at birth, dressing as a man in the early 1900s. This person could be a transgender man or they could be a cisgender woman who felt more comfortable in male clothes or who believed she would be able to access opportunities by presenting herself as a man that she might not be able to when presenting as a woman. See Mulan for more on that one. (laughs) If this person never explained their reasoning, how can we know? Answer is, we can't. In Roberta's case, we have to use the language she used to describe herself, and so that's what we'll use. 
if the idea of us covering a transgender woman makes you uncomfortable for other reasons, that's all right. Maybe give this a listen and keep your mind open. We believe that these histories are important to tell, not only because they are part of our history, and thus important in and of themselves, but because if these histories aren't told, they provide ammunition for those who want to erase and persecute transgender people today. If you've ever heard the argument that kids these days are just coming with coming up with quote-unquote nonsense genders and that these identities never existed in the perfect history of the past and so they're not real, well, if we tell histories such as this, we hopefully take away some of the ammunition for those bigots. Not to mention... Oh, hello. <laughs> <coughs> Not to mention, I personally think everyone should be able to find themselves in history. That's why when I'm in the classroom or gathering resources on, say, World War One, for, for a non-political example, I make sure to bring in evidence of Indigenous and Chinese OG Anzacs. Same goes with queer or transgender people in this context. Now, onward to the episode. Woohoo! Many of the sources and articles on Roberta Cow start with her first meeting with a certain famous doctor, not Doctor Who, uh, which is a good, interesting place to do so. But instead, I want to start with the time Roberta Cow was driving a car in London. At the age of 20, the nearest I had got to making history was when I almost ran over Mr. Neville Chamberlain two years previously on a Belisha crossing in Parliament Square. The old boy was remarkably spry, left to safety. I ignored the advice of the other occupants of the car, who suggested that I went around again and had another go. Perhaps it might have been better if I had. I really do like that quote. Perhaps it might quote. have been better if I had. Alright. 20-year-old Roberta had led a pretty charmed life. Born to a wealthy couple in 1918, a doctor and his wife, Dr. and Mrs. Cal, he was the sort of kid who was put into velvet suits when it came time to take a family photo, and he also had a nurse, whom he did not like. Fair. He also did not like going to church with his family and was very practical in terms of religious belief. He felt that if Judgment Day did happen, he'd just repent day off and everything would work out fine. Oh, logical. It makes sense. He didn't mind primary school much and was good at maths. Smart kids tended to get bullied, so he built up an air of being naturally good at it so he didn't get teased for, like, studying or doing homework. And that was okay. When Roberta began to attend public school, aka high school, he'd put on a bit of weight and was teased for it. Later, Roberta mentioned that this fat distribution was feminised in a way, lending to wide hips. There was no sex ed back in the day. This was the early 1930s. And so he and the other boys learnt about sex ed from stolen books in secret while one boy stood on guard outside the door. He joined up with sports teams with all the other boys, but tried to bathe alone when possible, following sports matches or training. He felt an impossible-to-describe sense of embarrassment or avoidance at the idea of showing. He also began to develop a sort of horror at being seen as close to or even interested in the company of men, horrified that people might think he was gay. The idea of being seen as gay filled him with shame. At the age of 13, Roberta developed appendicitis and his dad operated on him, which, as a reminder, his dad was a doctor, because <laughs> I freaked out the first time I read that in the script. From 12, the time mum offered to give me a pap smear and I was like, get out of my room! <laughs> My dad pulled one of my teeth out once with a pair of pliers from his shed. No. It was a baby tooth. It was wobbly. No. It was coming out. It's fine. I survived. Anyway, uh, Christ. From 12, Roberta was very interested in cars and engines and had his sights set on becoming a race car driver or a mechanical engineer. Later in life, Roberta would reflect that this may have been a way to bl of blending into the world of men, being so engaged in traditionally male pastimes. He was interested... Oh, this is where it gets confusing because this is her reminiscing in her 1952 biography. So she was interested in cars, engines and all sorts of male pursuits, writing in her 1952 biography... I wanted to fly fighter aircraft, drive fast cars and perform other feats. 
In my daydreams, I would be the schoolboy's idol, heroically doing fantastically courageous things, then nonchalantly signing autographs. Oddly enough, I never wanted to be an engine driver. Perhaps I disliked the thought of having to proceed along ready-laid lines without any choice as to direction and destination. Or else it'll be, run, run, go fast! Yeah! Driving fast is fun. In his mid-teens, Roberta joined up with the Officers' Training Corps, OTC, and soon became an NCO, or non-commissioned officer. He disliked the boys' club aspect of the OTC, especially when it came to training weekends, and so also put his time elsewhere. Desperate to become involved in motor racing, Roberta put on a pair of coveralls, filled up a bucket of water, and pretended to be a worker at Brooklands, and they basically waved him through the gate. So, more proof that if you just attempt, just look like you belong, you can get away with it. I've been watching a little leverage, and that is, that's literally how they do it. Brooklyn's was one of the uh, most important original racing car circuits in Britain of the day, and foreshadowing would become an aerodrome in World War I and an airplane manufacturing facility in World War II before being bombed, as they say, to fuck. He just worked on whatever car was going or not going, as and when the opportunity afforded it. The minute he turned 17, robot... Roberta became a motor car racer, which, despite the wealth of his family, was an expensive hobby. Roberta really is the James Hunt of her day. I really should have known you were going to bring in the Nicky Lauder situation into this. I just think he's neat. Yeah, that's fair. So, in response to this, Roberta formed a Nicky Lauder-style plan, which was to join the RAF on a short service, get paid, fuck bitches, get money, and then use that money on a two-month leave to race. Great plan. This is before 1939, obviously. In fact, towards the end of his time at school, Roberta and a few mates went on a little tour of Belgium, Germany and Austria, which at the time was separate from Germany. By this time, Roberta had gotten quite into photography, and in Frankfurt he actually took some film of Nazi soldiers doing marching drills, for which he was promptly arrested. Shocking. He only knew one sentence in German, which was Ein Eisbitter, which means Hannah. Bitter's like please, yeah. isn't it? So something, something, please. It means... One ice cream, please. Very unhelpful. Yeah. Um, so obviously this wasn't much use to say to the police who were part of the Nazi state apparatus. So once home, Roberta threw himself into learning German, which would come in handy later. Roberta herself later said in her biography that learning German would save her life. Roberta became a star pupil in the RAF, and when he received his commission, he was the youngest officer at the time to do so. However, this was no Roll Dahl, Love Flying, Best It Ever, Bang Bang, Shoot Em Up, Whoop Whoop, Young Dashing RAF Soldier. Flying planes made Roberta feel seriously sick, though he tried to hide it as he graduated from flying tiger moths for training to flying on active service. Tiger moths being a plane and not just a really big moth. They're like the planes with the two wings instead of one, like a biplane. Do you like the idea of him just on the back of a moth? It sounds very, um, there's a great Scott Westerfield young adult series called Leviathan that involved genetically engineered um, beasts fighting in World War I. Oh, it was very good. That it was sounds illustrated. pretty Fun. I want that too. I think I still have it somewhere. Yeah. Around 1936, eventually he let slip that flying made him very sick and he was invalided out. Probably a smart decision. Yeah. Really? It's like, we don't need this, like, bloody Air Force anyway. Nothing's going to happen. Appeasement's going to work just fine. Just fine. It's going to be fine. Calm down, Neville. It's going to be fine. Calm down, Neville. I'm fine. He continued to enjoy flying, though, and even performed aerobatics on occasion, only landing after he felt too sick to keep going. Surely that's not a good idea if you get, like, flying sick. I think he really just had, like, a weak stomach for this kind of thing. 
Because, like, surely you're doing, like, flips in the air. Yeah. If flying in a straight line makes you feel sick, flipping is not going to help. Like, he could feel all, he'd feel all right for quite a bit of it, and okay. then he'd start feeling sick. All and right. it was, you kind of need to do flips Fair. if you're going to fight the Nazis, basically. Yeah, but the Nazis aren't being fought by planes at this stage. Not yet. Not no. yet! Foreshadowing. For World War II, the most deadly conflict in human history. Um, in those days, most of Roberta's time was occupied with cars. He was studying engineering at University College in London and driving racing cars in races and speed trials. It was around this time we can circle back to the start of the episode. Women and of then... War is recorded on... No, it was when Roberta nearly ran over Neville Chamberlain. Also, we can, can we talk about my homeboy just for a minute? Nikki Lauda, who had a narrow unescape from a horrendous F1 accident in the 1970s. Nikki Lauda was an Austrian racing car driver who was horrifically burned after an accident at the Nürburgring. You can just interrupt me whenever you want. Yeah, I'm just deciding when I'm going to interrupt you because this could go on for five yeah, hours. Yeah. So but... they made this into a movie called Rush by Ron Howard. Which yeah, really okay, I'm going to interrupt film. you there. Nicola, this is a show called Women of War and not Austrians Burns Victims. That's fair. Nikki also had a double lung transplant. Nicola. Um, Anyway, long story short, um, one day while racing, Roberta was going 140 miles per hour, about 225 kilometers per hour if you're using civilized units, when he realized he had no control over steering. He managed to get the car back into the pits, and basically as he did so, one of the front wheels came loose. I can't imagine that's good. Yeah. Basically, if that had come loose any earlier, he would have died, because safety stuff in race cars and regular cars back then um, didn't exist. Um, it was like, if you crash, well, it's like, don't crash, but if you do crash, pray you'll die quickly. Um, like, this is before the Le Mans disaster. So I did question the speed because that's as, 225 kilometers is actually about as fast as a car today is allowed to go. I wouldn't like my go. car going that fast. It would probably fall apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I looked at the two Maseratis that Roberta would have been potentially driving in the 30s and um, the early one, the 1936 Maserati 6CM, only had a top speed of 130 miles or 210 kilometers an hour. So he might have been able to push this up to 140 on the straight or even downhill. Um, so the track he tested this on was probably the Brooklyn's near Surrey, which does have two long straights, but it was like a velodrome-style racetrack, so no downhill. Anyway, the second Maserati he might have driven was the Maserati 4CL, which was introduced in 1939 in April, but the war started in August, so I don't know if Roberta would be taking part in that race. Um, the 4CL did have a top speed of 146 miles per hour. But the point of all this diversion is... Um, as with all historical documents and records, this claim needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but especially because later in life, and we're talking the 70s, Roberta claimed to have been an intersex woman all along as opposed to a transgender woman, and she actually said some really disparaging things about transgender people. So Roberta may have been misremembering the speed she was going at, or she may have been exaggerating it. A future fighter pilot? A future fighter pilot? Exaggerate? <laughs> yeah, basically. But this is her autobiography, so she wrote it. And we have to remember, as history students in secondary and tertiary education often incorrectly say, the source has bias. She could be exaggerating. Everything has bias. Oh, Christ. This dress has a bias cut. All right. She could be exaggerating to make the story more exciting. She could be misremembering. She could be flat out lying to make herself more impressive. There's another scene after the first time she left the RAF where she claimed to have been hitchhiking and looked so good looking and natty and handsome dreamboat <laughs> 1930s mechanic pilot dude that when she was about to give the person who drove her five shillings, they spontaneously gave her two shillings. I just... Like, bullshit. It's so, like, like maybe it's like a thank you for your service but like, thing. But, no like, no matter how handsome I saw someone, I'm not going to pay them just for existing like you as got a in my car. Person. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I you know. came into my life so I could stare at you while yeah. I drove you around. Absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so back to the plot. The plot? Do we have a plot? Narrative. Back to the narrative. Roberta Cowell nearly ran over Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain's infamous policies of appeasement against Hitler did not work, so perhaps Europe would have been better off if she'd hit him. 
He's the guy who said in September 1938 that he had secured peace, peace for our time, time in Europe. In September 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. So, peace for our time in Europe, not really a thing. Um, so, this, you know, invasion of Poland, widely regarded as a popular move for Hitler and an unpopular move for everybody else. Roberta did try to rejoin the RAF as a fighter pilot, seeing it as his patriotic duty. He bombarded them with calls for months, but they took a look at his medical history and were like, hmm, no, maybe not. You spew everywhere, mate. We're not having you. Um, but they didn't completely overlook Roberta. The war office approached him and offered him as a position as either a mechanical engineer with a commission or a job with the Royal Army Service Corps, who were in charge of logistics, transport, air dispatch and the like. Organising where people went and when while they were at barracks. Roberta chose the latter as he thought it had more advancement opportunities and he enlisted in January 1940. Upon arriving at base, he was given two identity tags, one for your neck and one for your body, in case they were blown in two. If you listen to the Vera Deacon part one episode, you'll appreciate this was a big step up from the World War One era identity tags. These ones always just didn't... These ones also didn't just decompose. Yeah, I mean, you would obviously be atomized sometimes and, like, that yeah, wouldn't matter. But or you'd land in the ocean and die and sink. And then you come back, you know, out of an iceberg seven years later yeah. and you become Captain America. I was and- going to make an avatar <laughs> <laughs> Roberta found life at the barracks dull and weird and didn't like that there was no privacy, which is very valid. Uh, It was also a very cliché idea of life on an army base. I was told by the more experienced men that there were two golden rules to be adhered to if I wanted my life to go smoothly. One was never admit you can do anything. The other was always look busy, especially when you have nothing to do. It was not long before I realised that there was quite a lot to be said for them. On parade, a sergeant asked us if anyone could drive a Rolls Royce. I opened my mouth, then remembered rule one and shut it again. An eager voice behind me said, I can, sergeant. He was sent off to clean the latrines. Another soldier who admitted to being a professional xylophone player was given the task of mending duckboards. For rule two, once an officer caught me hanging around the barracks and gave me a few weeks of potato peeling duty, after this, I went around with an armful of documents and a very intent expression. After a week of wandering around base doing this, Roberta scored an unpaid role as a workshop instructor in a nearby training school. He got a stripe for this, like military stripe yep. on your shoulder. In January 1941, he got a commission and was posted to Cambridgeshire as a captain in charge of mobile workshops. That is, workshops that could move around and not screen repair places in shopping centres. In May 1941, Roberta... Married a girl I had known for some years. There was little more to be said about this, except that in many ways it was a typical wartime marriage, and not a very happy one. There are several gaping absences in Roberta's autobiography, and the presence of her wife, Diana Carpenter, and their two children is one of them. Diana actually sounds pretty cool. She was an engineering student who shared Roberta's interest in motor racing. It's not that Roberta didn't care enough about her wife and kids to put them in her biography, but clearly it was a complex and emotional point of contention between them. Impulsive or even shotgun marriages were common in the war. Nicholas' family knows a lot about that. Fucking shots fired, all right. So it might have just been as simple as that, but in this case, Roberta may also have subconsciously been trying to live up to the male heterosexual ideal of wartime masculinity. Okay, fuck bitches, get money, live fast, die young, or end up in a POW camp. Foreshadowing. Very quickly after the war, Roberta was transferred to Iceland to lead a heavy repair shop. Um, he found this really frustrating because it was even further from the front. And what was Iceland even doing during World War Two? Probably hold, holding off the Soviets. I googled somewhere. this and then I've yeah. forgotten. But it was like 
didn't they get invaded by Britain or something? Look, probs. Look, honestly, I don't know much about Icelandic history. I know vague bits about Vikings. And they have an app to check if you're related to people you pick up in bars. I did know that bit. Yeah, I need to get one of those. And KFC is very expensive there. So after a lot of bureaucratic wrangling, Roberta managed to transfer back into the RAF. It was probably easier because lots of pilots had died by then, and he was a captain by this point. Despite still getting sick while up in the air, Roberta managed to get through and was once again a member of the RAF. Things were complex in the RAF at the oh, time. Oh, by the way, RAF stands for Royal Air Force. I did just, I had that thought at the exact same moment. I was like, have we said Is that? Is it Royal Air Force? Yeah, Royal Air yeah, Force. Yeah, because then we had the Royal Australian Air yeah. Force. Yeah. yeah. Royal Air Force. Things were complex in the Royal Air Force or RAF at the time. Emotionally speaking, for one, the airmen of the RAF were most likely to die, especially those in Bomber Command, who were the multi-man crews who piloted the famous Lancaster bombers across to Germany to bomb, at first, centres of military or manufacturing significance, before just giving up on that and bombing civilian populations. The reasoning here was that the Germans had started doing that first. So... That's like been a topic of historical debate since yeah. it happened. Like since before, since they were planning it, they were like, "Is this worth it?" And mm. they've never really been able to fully answer that question. I mean, like you can't answer that question. Yeah, because it's like we don't know what would have happened in the war if they hadn't yeah. done it. Unless we have a time machine and we can do parallel universes and like test out different theories. I know that um, one of the gentlemen I live with at the Australian War Memorial, he had done some stuff on Bomber Command, mm. and there was talk it might have helped in the war six months earlier because mm. Germany was teetering even before they yeah. started bombing these population centers. And like in a war that's gone. On this long six months could be really significant in terms yeah. of lives lost. But okay, so logistically, things were complex at the RAF because, in order to prevent the enemy landing gliders on the runways at Coventry at night, the RAF would just park a bunch of secondhand cars all over the place. But when British airmen forgot and tried to land on top of them, that could also get very stressful. And so they abandoned the car idea, which meant the bases were wide open to enemy glider landings. Roberta's air sickness was also a known issue, and the RAF tried to put him into bomber command because those planes tended to be steadier. The Lancaster bombers were more, less manoeuvrable than fighter planes like the famous Spitfires, Tiger Moths, and the German Stuckers because it had what the RAF termed, quote, a fuckload of bombs on board, end quote. This is mostly information from my dad, by the way. Peter Hobbins, if you're listening, please let us know how wrong I am. <laughs> um, using a combination of glucose syrup, a tight belt, and the mantra, I will not be ill, she was a very determined person, like, no matter what she did in the end and how she behaved, Roberta Cow is one of the most determined people yeah. I've come across. Look, I respect that. Yeah. Massive bitch, though. Yeah. Um, so using this mantra, I will not be ill, Roberta managed to get through fighter pilot training and learned to fly the Miles Master, which is one of those like two-seater planes like on Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. <laughs> um, Roberta also trained in Tiger Moths, and after he passed the course, he was put into a Spitfire. Roberta loved the Spitfire. Um, probably not because of this, but also possibly because this is the most iconic Iconic? Iconish? Iconish British plane of the year. <laughs> Roberta loved the Spitfire, which is probably the most iconic British plane of the era. I think it's... I think even then it was like a very manoeuvrable, very, very good plane. That makes sense. And I guess the most iconic Nazi plane of the era is the Stuka, because I just like saying it. It's a good it's or, a good name. Or the Messerschmitt. Yeah. But oh, actually, can I tell you a joke? Yes. Okay, so... And I'm going to tell you a joke, then I'm going to tell you what the actual joke is, because for so long I've, like, not understood it. Okay. Okay. So there's this old, like, fighter pilot who comes to talk at, like, a kid's, at, like, a primary school, and he's like, oh, so I was flying my Spitfire, and I had fuckers to the left of me, and fuckers to the right of me, and fuckers up and fuckers down, and they were just everywhere, and I shot them all down, and the teacher stops, and she's like, just so you know, kids, fuckers are, um, are a kind of plane. 
And um, and he goes, I don't know about you, miss, but these fuckers were in Messerschmitts. But, <laughs> so I told dad this joke and I was like, I'm so proud. I told a good joke. And then dad was like, you know that the fucker was a kind of plane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really saying, it was like fucker or something. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh. Do we have iconic planes today? The Maybe G for George. The Boeing 747. <laughs> that hel- that um, Roman Wishup's helicopter. <laughs> Despite passing their training and being some of the best and brightest young men Britain had to offer, flying was also one of the riskiest businesses of the war. Roberta had several near misses just on practice flights, and more than one pilot died due to accidents, training mishaps, or mechanical failure. More importantly, though, the pilots all had to look a very certain way. For most of his life, Roberta had avoided thinking very much about the way he dressed, and often looked quite ratty. Perhaps this was an unconscious way of him ignoring the realities of his body, Perhaps he was just a greasy lad. <laughs> but the pilots were the elite of the elite, and even Roberta reminisced about the white turtleneck he wore under his flight suit, and that he and his compatriots wore their hair longer than regulation. Like, not much, like, like one centimetre longer. Because, like, the Beatles Rebellious. were, like, scandalous back in the day. So, like, you can imagine, like, <laughs> wow, one curl out of place. Oh, that's hot. Actually, one curl out of place oh. is, is a good oh. look. But not too much longer... Yeah, there was a war on. They didn't want to let the side down. Roberta enjoyed flying and the mechanical aspects, but like many of the other pilots, found the bureaucratic elements and the paperwork very annoying, which that's so understandable. You just want to fly and shoot Nazis. Let's go fly a plane up <laughs> to cause a Nazi's pain. Let's go Fill fly in the paperwork. a plane and send them Dot the T's, cross the I's. Um, at one point, a squadron leader who was known to hate paperwork was tricked into signing an notice that said, I, the undersigned, hereby declare that I never read the damned thing that is put in front of me. And then they put it on a board. <laughs> Never <Everyone laughs> could see it. <laughs> there were other female pilots on and around the base. As we mentioned in our episode on the Soviet Night Witches... Aren't we doing good at, like, dropping out episodes? I know. Episode? I, I made an effort today. The Air Transport Auxiliary, ATA, was a civilian organisation that was basically in charge of moving scrap and spare parts around Britain to keep planes in the air, as well as working as an air ambulance and transporting flight crews between bases. They would also fly new planes from the factories to the airfields, and if you watch the Netflix documentary on the Spitfire, they do talk to some of the ATA members. Awesome. Now, a lot of British civilian male pilots had moved across the RAF, including Douglas Bader. Let me tell him his ordeal. He I lost... cut this out of the Soviets night, which is yeah. <laughs> He lost both legs in an accident, and he was retired against his will. Though, interestingly, there was actually nothing in the rule book about pilots needing one or even both legs. So you don't have, like, clutch pedals, do you? No. Nah. In a plane? I actually helped him because with the less, like, he had the same, almost the same amount of blood as, like, a like a fully legged person for lack of a better term but it meant often he wouldn't pass out as quickly as the other pilots because there's less places for his blood to go <laughs> it can't yeah. rush away from his it head to his feet it can only go to his knees basically yeah. um, so after the war started he actually did re-enlist because they were really desperate but they eventually ended up in a POW camp but then he kept trying to escape and so the Nazis just took his legs off him like they just not like his actual like physical remaining <laughs> legs they just took his like prosthetics which is oh Probably a violation of the Geneva Convention. Yeah, but like, like surely you need that would be like prisoners deserve their legs. mobility. I was about to say like, but in Changi they had to make a bamboo leg, and it's like, yeah, Nicola Changi wasn't exactly the most like law abiding fucking following in the world. Geneva Convention. Um, my point is, it is just a funny image of like Douglas. We have asked you to stop. Please give me your legs. <laughs> okay. 
So, with a lack of dudes to fly in the ATA, a lot of women were flying split split fires. Split fires. That's when you'd get a spitfire and you cut it into... Which the Nazis often did. Um... To, they were flying Spitfires and the such to and from the factories. One of the women who delivered planes to Roberta's base was a third officer, but she was also packing some extra cargo. She was pregnant, but put off stopping flying as long as possible because she knew her job was too important. As with Douglas Bader, there was nothing in the rule book about pilots having to be not pregnant. Unpregnant? I don't know. Um, anyway, as Chase. <laughs> eventually... Virginus. I, if I knew anything about flight bases, nobody was chased <laughs> on them. Anyway, eventually a new regulation was introduced. Third officers are not allowed to carry passengers. Including ones inside them. Yeah. This is actually an interesting part of Roberta's book because within 10 pages of each other, we see three vastly different ways women engaged with the war and the men of the war in Britain. First is our pregnant ATA officer. So our next lady is a nurse. One evening while Roberta's squad were off duty, they were sitting around drinking German beer. Don't worry about it, it's fine. And they decided to go out dancing. There were a handsome young bunch of dudes, and there were pilots, which is scientifically proven to be the sexiest branch of the armed forces. It's because the closer you are to death, the more alive you feel. And the blue jumpsuits. Blue jumpsuits are good. And the jackets. I like the jackets. Yeah. 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 So off they went, and Roberta was dragged along. She ended up dancing with a pleasant-looking young woman who revealed herself to be a nurse at the local children's hospital. She was actually on duty that night, but said that she'd put some dope in the nighttime hot chocolate for the kids, and then be sound asleep till morning, which... Excuse me, lady. I wonder if she was kidding, but like, it could be Roberta could again be like lying. Yeah. Like, she could be like, oh, you know, I'm totally on duty, but I just had some dope in there, hot chalky. But yeah. maybe she was starting later. Also, she could have just been a really fucking bad nurse. Yeah, she could have. Like, anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Another time, Roberta and the boys were bored on base at Eldershot, and they decided to go check out the local theatres. The performance wasn't interesting to Roberta, and she ended up sitting in a bar that was by the side of the stage. So, take it away, Roberta. Sitting in the bar was a very charming young lady, sipping a lemonade with exquisite refinement. She was one of the artists, and her act opened the second half of the bill. We talked for a few minutes, and then she had to go get ready. She said that my companions and I must be sure to be in our seats when the tabs rose. She then vanished backstage. During intermission, I was joined by my friends, and I told them that I had just met an extraordinarily nice girl. Those are my exact words, and that we must be sure to be promptly in our seats at the end of the intermission. She was probably going to do something very special for our benefit. The orchestra played the opening music for the second half. We were all in our seats, and the curtains parted. There she stood, wearing an RAF hat and nothing else. A banner behind her proclaimed the words, Salute to the RAF. For weeks afterwards, I was sick and tired of being asked, Met any extraordinarily nice girls lately? I love that quote, though. Like, met any more extraordinarily nice girls lately? <laughs> but it wasn't all drink-spiking nurses and extraordinarily nice girls. Working primarily as a convoy escort doesn't sound like the most glamorous, cool, or difficult flying job, but it did put a lot of strain on the body and the mind. And I forgot to put this in, and that was what Roberta was doing. <laughs> That's a good point to make. Yeah, so um, during the war, as we know, the German U-boats would often bomb the fuck out of supply ships that were coming to Britain. Yep. Uh, and so they not only had, like, warships escorting these merchant ships, the Merchant Navy, which my grandfather was actually part of. In the, the Navy. We didn't actually know that till a few years ago. Because really? they're like, yeah, he just didn't do anything in the war. And I was like, that doesn't sound right if he was, like, a boat person. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so, yeah, Roberta was one of the flying escorts for a lot of these cargo yep. ships, as well as a fighter pilot. Yep. That makes sense. The planes of World War II were nothing like the planes and jets of today. 
They had limited safety features and often oxygen and heating weren't available, which you do need when you're flying in the sky, which is not heated and doesn't actually have as much oxygen as you would think. Equipment might also fail. Roberta and another pilot were on a long-range mission where his partner was shot down over the target. On his way home, Roberta's radio failed and visibility was very low due to a storm. He had to find his way home by estimating how far he was from the base and flew down through the cloud until he could see the ground, or rather, the ocean. Roberta was somewhere over the sea and had no idea where he was and no way of discerning where. If I were over the English Channel and flew west, I might not hit land. And if I were over the North Sea and flew north, I shouldn't strike land either. I flew west, and a minute or two later, cautiously descended again. I saw dry land beneath. A drizzling rain was falling, and the cloud was almost down to the ground, so I made a precautionary landing in a field on the edge of a cliff. As I taxied the aircraft, the engine spluttered and died. Fuel had run out. A car drove up a few minutes later, and it was only then that I knew for certain I had landed in England. Regardless of all these experiences, Roberta was happy to be back in the air, feeling that air fighting was a return to the way war should be, one-on-one, the object being to kill or be killed. However, he and many other pilots also changed their way of thinking. It never occurred to them that they would survive the war. It was just a matter of time before they were killed like their companions. This kind of thinking is called fatalism. It's not quite suicidal because you're not actively seeking to kill yourself. It's more like if it happens, it happens and it will happen. Perhaps you could call it passive suicidality. This often occurs in people serving in wars or living in war zones, and one of the most famous fatalists is someone everyone in Australia knows the name of, John Kirkpatrick. From Hannah's face, I can tell she doesn't know who I mean. I mean John Simpson, as in Simpson and the ah, donkey. Yes. Simpson and his donkey. So a lot of the men on Gallipoli were like, fuck it. Yeah, that makes and sense. And that did happen to Simpson. Yeah. He was bombed. Yeah. And, like, and they weren't targeting him. They just died. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we stole the idea for the donkeys from the Indians. Moving on. But the war continued. Roberta took part in the retaking of France, including transporting US airmen around the place. The Yanks had arrived. He got to visit Paris during the liberation and described it as an amazing experience. We were greeted by members of the Marquis, who wore amulets and brandished a selection of firearms. They told us... Marquis is basically the French Resistance Army. Also, we do mention the Marquis in our Edith Piaf episode, just to tally up another little reference. It's my biography, Let Me Talk. The Marquis told us that Paris was now free, although we might still run into a certain amount of street fighting. Everyone seemed to be overjoyed to see us, and we were well and truly fettered, despite the fact that the electricity was cut off. Once we got mixed up with some street fighting, and the headlamps of the jeep were shot out, but little damage resulted. It was an unforgettable night. The war might have been over in Paris, but those Nazis were still out and about in Europe and needed to be pushed back into Germany. Get back where you came from, also help me. And be stomped into the fucking dirt. In November 1944, Roberta was flying solo over the Rhine on the last tour for his second round of operations when it became very apparent he was going to die. His aircraft was hit directly in the cannon. In the cannon. In the cannon. As far as I'm aware, planes don't have cannons. I'm building up to what I have to say next. Like, gotta focus on that bit. His aircraft was hit directly in the engine by Germany. German anti-aircraft guns, a.k.a. Fliegerabwehrkanonen, which is where the word flak comes from. Really? Yes. So, it, like, it shortens to FL Cannon, I'm pretty sure. Mm. So, like, flak. Fun fact. The engine is quite important for planes to stay in the air. A little bit. And also, um, he was hit in the port wing. Too low to the ground to use his parachute, effectively. Roberta was out of options. 
He figured he'd try and survive the plane crash with a controlled dive, but he'd probably not survive the arrest by the Germans, considering he'd just dropped a bunch of bombs on them minutes before. They might be a bit annoyed about that. At this point in the war too, it was becoming clear the Germans were very much losing, and they weren't feeling too nice about it. Roberto managed to straighten out the dive the plane was in and hit the ground, somehow without any major injuries except for his pride. And then came the Germans. But, for whatever reason... The Germans were well-disciplined and perfectly civil. Hans, we are the baddies, but let's try to turn it around. We'll be the nice baddies. Roberta was taken to a nearby farmhouse and imprisoned. Thus began his adventures in Germany. He was held in the farmhouse for a few days by a friendly trombone playing Austrian, I love that, (laughs) who felt that the war would end soon and it would not be in the favour of the Third Reich. I just hope those communists don't take over, that would be really bad. (laughs) He was so friendly, in fact, that he asked Roberta for his home address in England and said he would write letters to him after the war was over. And he did! The Austrian was a musician, and Roberta did know a little piano because, as aforementioned, he was rich, so... Yeah, it's Um, sense. So while he was holding him prisoner, Roberta wrote out a little bit of one song he could remember in order to curry favour with the Austrian. I love the idea of them just, like, jamming at the night. Yeah. But... Trombone and piano don't go they well were. together without it's, other things. I don't I know, it could be alright. Yeah, okay. Right, I'll try and dig something up and we'll put it in like the promo <laughs> stuff. One evening, he told Roberta he was being taken away in the morning. And Roberta asked him some questions about the layout of the land and the area. Railway trucks, rivers, that sort of thing. There was a viaduct nearby. Perfect. Perfect. That night I slept even less than usual. I was determined to do my best to escape in the morning, whilst still comparatively near the frontier. In a few days' time, I should be a long way further inside Germany, and escape would be a thousand times more difficult. At dawn, the sergeant came in and shouted at me to get up. I jumped to my feet, feeling more than a little nervous. The escort fell in outside, and I was marched off up the road. The guard had told me that we should have to pass over a small railway embankment. When we reached this, I vaulted the low parapet and dived into one of the viaduct tunnels. I wanted to cross underneath the railway line through the tunnel and ran, but the one I chose didn't go right through the embankment and they caught me easily. He was then bundled into a car. Roberta, not the trombone plane Austria. Roberta, he's gone. We don't worry about him again. Roberta, Yeah, he was bundled into a car. While being driven, Roberta came to realise how badly the war really was going for Germany. There were Allied planes everywhere overhead, and to keep watch, one of the German guards was lying on the bonnet looking up at the sky. At one point, six British planes flew overhead. The Germans all freaked, stopped the car, and jumped into a ditch, leaving Roberta in the car alone. Just like, guys, you're really bad at taking prisoners. But those planes flew onto bigger and better targets, and the Germans got back in the car like they totally meant for that to happen. How embarrassing would yeah. that be if you just, like, jumped out and the prisoner's still sitting there and you're just like, uh... Do you want me to get real dark again or are we going to move on? Go okay, for it. Okay, well, it's like, by this point, a lot of the soldiers yeah. would probably have been yeah. younger, like yeah. children. There's a scene later on yeah. where the... Yeah, you meet a bunch of soldiers and they're like, they're at least... They're babies. They're 16 to 20. Mm. Like, they shouldn't be officers in the first mm. place. They should be soldiers in the first mm. place. So I'm wondering if these, some sense. of these officers were... Babies. Younger men. Yeah. Yeah. Or older, older men who... So there was this thing called casserole armies. And this is both World War One and World War Two for Germany and England in World War One, um, Where, because the idea of the casseroles made with new meat, new gr- young greens and old meat. Oh. And so these battalions were made up of young boys and old, old men. And it's not very funny that's anymore, a, is that's it? That's a terrible that's not... name for it, too. Oh, it's just a way of dealing with the yeah. horror. Humour became yeah. such a I mean, crutch yeah. for so many people. 
Okay, so they get back in the car because the planes have flown on. So Roberta was curious at the lack of returning air defence and she, he, sorry, asked them where the Luftwaffe was and the soldiers refused to answer. Where were the Luftwaffe, do you ask? Apart from dead and imprisoned. In November 1944, what was left of the Luftwaffe would have been probably preparing for Operation Bordenblatt, basically the Nazi air wing's Hail Mary move planned for January 1945. It was an offensive aimed at many points in Belgium and the Netherlands and unsurprisingly, if you know your world history, it did not work. Roberta was put on a train with two guards who were also warned he might try to escape, which meant Roberta was really surprised when they just, like, got out of the train carriage and left him alone in the compartment. So after a moment or two, he toddled on down to the, like, outside exit door and just jumped onto the rail tracks to run away. And then the Nazi guards began to fight on him from where they'd been waiting in the next carriage. It was a setup. That's just bloody rude. Somehow, Roberta managed to take cover behind the railings and was recaptured. This time, the Nazis weren't so nice and trustworthy. They handcuffed him and took his boots away. <laughs> At least they didn't take his legs. Yeah, it's just like, Hans, it's just like this Douglas guy. Maybe we should take his legs. It's like, no, those ones are real. We should leave them. Okay. Handily, Roberta had really small feet for the pilot boots, and so he'd gotten into the habit of wearing two socks on each foot. Convenient. So it was like a bit more padding for him. Love it. Roberta was taken to a camp with 14 other prisoners, mostly British and from the wider Commonwealth. The 15 men were expected to share one small loaf of bread a day. As Roberta was the highest-ranked officer there, it was his job to cut the loaf up into 16 pieces, in half, and then in half, and then in half, and so on. The 16th piece would go to the man deemed by the majority of the others to have received the smallest piece of the 15 main bits of bread. Two more prisoners arrived, but fortunately Roberta was moved to Frankfurt that day and didn't have to figure out how to cut bread into 17 equal pieces. Unfortunately, he was brought to Frankfurt just as a bombing raid was starting, and they all bundled into a bomb shelter. One British RAF officer and a bunch of scared and angry German citizens who recognised Roberta for what it was equals stressful situation. Mm. It was also highly likely, it was also highly unlikely that his guards would do anything to stop the crowd tearing him apart. Well, they could also have just been 10-year-old boys in, like, Nazi coats, so like, yeah. they might not have been able to do anything. Two 10-year-olds on top of each other in a Nazi coat. Thinking fast, in bad German, Roberta told them that he was a fighter pilot, not a bomber pilot, which was true, and that his parents had just been killed in a German air raid, which was not true. Eventually, they made their way to another train station, where Roberta noticed that the Germans really did seem to be in poor shape for supplies. They only had crepe paper bandages for his plane crash injuries, and the coffee they gave him was made up of ground acorns, which apparently is a decent drink, but it kind of does lack the main benefit of coffee, which is the caffeine. Yeah. So this is that period where they're they're making ersatz foods all Mm -hmm. throughout Germany. Lots of sawdust is happening. From Frankfurt, Roberta was taken to the main interrogation centre, where he was searched, stripped, and searched again. Famously, the British uniform, uniforms, by this point in the war, were quite elaborately designed, with hidden maps sewed into the lining and so on. Roberta's uniform had two magnetised buttons, which could be used as compasses. I don't know how. I just assume it's like a maths thing. Like one, I don't know how to make a magnet into a compass. I don't either. Oh, actually, I do. Never mind. Um, Isn't that when you put it in water and then it rotates in a direction? Oh, I was going to, like, you could magnetise a needle or a nail and then you put it on something that floats and then you put it in water and it Uh, turns and tells you where north is. Yeah. But then I'd be fucked because I'd be like, I guess you just go, you go east, but then you hit the channel and you wouldn't want to hit the channel. You don't want to hit the channel. But if you go west, you fucking run into the Soviets, so you don't want to be running into them. Anyway. Um, so the Germans confiscated those, obviously. After his preliminary interview, because this is before he was an official prisoner of war, Roberta was given three weeks of solitary confinement in a tiny cell with a plank bed. And the first week apparently was really rough, and then he was like, oh, the second two weeks were just fine. It's like, Roberta, are you putting on a brave face? We don't know. Yeah. 
And like this is common for a lot of victims of these like camps that survived. Like they're like, oh, that bit was fine. It's different in terms of concentration camps. We're talking about prisoners of war. Yes. Which is and, very different. And thing. again, the British experience of being a prisoner was mm-hmm. very different to being a Soviet prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then let's not even talk about Japanese oh, prisoner of war. We're, camps. No, we're not even. We're I don't think that about it even mentions Asia outside of talking about Buddhism. So we're not going to yeah. like, we're not going to touch the Asia yeah. Pacific sphere right now. No. Um, so after these three weeks, he was informed he was a prisoner of war and so could not be interrogated any further. Fun fact, the German slang for POW is Kriegi, short for Kriegsgefangene. I love that you've given yourself all the German words. I wanted to be nice. I appreciate it. Yeah. Roberta was moved to another transit camp. One night they heard the air raid siren and mosquito pathfinder planes flew overhead. These planes would drop flares to mark out where to bomb for the following Lancaster bombers, piloted and crewed by the Bomber Command, who Roberta had been asked to join earlier in the war. Oh, fuck, said the prisoners, because the camp was the only clear place marked out for miles but not once in the raid did a single bomb fall inside the prisoner of war camp that's very handy yeah and do you know why why because later on um roberta meets one of the pilots who've been involved in the raid they're like oh. we knew it was a prisoner of war camp Ooh. we didn't want to hit you guys that's nice yes they that's were good. Deli- so they could aim better by then because they're not getting shot at by stuckers yeah. and things it does help with aiming yeah so what followed was a very overcrowded train ride of other british and american captured aircrew 15 men to a compartment meant to hold eight There was no food but for the few Red Cross parcels that were delivered. Roberta and the men were on that train for five days and five nights. And then he was taken to Starlag Luft 1, a POW camp specifically for pilots and air crews located in the far north of Germany, nearish to the Polish border. Some of the men in Starlag Luft 1 were the dudes who The Great Escape was based on, but that escape itself was actually from Tweety's Chicken Farm. Um, (laughs) So... Or Starlag Luft No, three. chicken escapes from Tweety's far. I don't want to be a pie. I don't, I don't like gravy. Yeah, Starlag Luft 3 is where the great escape happened. Yeah. Steve McQueen, slice. Did you know um, the guy who plays Fraser's dad, like Martin Crane, mm-hmm. was actually Steve McQueen's body double in The Great Escape? Really? Yeah. My favourite bit about The Great Escape. I've never actually seen The Great Escape. It is a fun I'm a movie. Bad, I'm a bad historian. It's a fun movie. My favorite bit is like, there's all these complicated escape plans about like, they, they dig the tunnel. Spoiler alert. They dig the tunnel. Tom, Dick and Harry. Yeah. yeah. They get out and then like, you know, they're all doing their like complicated escape plans and most of them get captured. Yeah. Like, and then, was it like 98% yeah, of them got captured? And these two, du- two dudes just get on a rowboat and just fucking row. <laughs> and like the movie ends with them like gumming up the Thames. Are you fucking kidding me? Great. They rowed across the channel. <laughs> Like, you don't actually see them once they get in the boat and you see all the other people getting captured and oh. then these guys at the end are just, like, rowing and they're like, oh, we made it. <laughs> I think, I love is it, it true? Because I, I, I feel like this is true, but I've never actually confirmed it. The officers were all under orders to try and escape as much as possible. I think so. Because it was, like, a way of dragging German resources yes. back into yes. the camps. I, yeah. I haven't, like, looked into it, but I have heard that. Yeah. Because it's, And like, it makes sense. Yeah. Because it's it, technically it, illegal. It's just a dick move. You're making it more complicated for the Germans. Mm. And so, or whoever's, you know, holding you prisoner. And so, like, it means that there's less soldiers and resources yeah. to fight the war. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, this so, is me. Yeah. I'm speaking still. So okay. some of the people in the camp had been part of the Great Escape or were yes. going to be part of the Great yes. Escape. Okay, so. But it wasn't the camp the Great Escape happened at. No, because that was Tweety's chicken farm. Yes. All new arrivals to the camp, which is Stulag Luft 1, were treated with suspicion, as any new Kriegi could be a secret German spy. A secret German spy! Eventually, though, some other prisoners who'd known Roberta in England vouched for him. What stuck out most for Roberta in his memories of the camp was this. There was no food. The Germans by this point in the war were unable to feed themselves, let alone the people who'd been bombing them. 
Red Cross parcels were in short supply, either because the Germans were taking them for themselves... Which is illegal. ...or they simply weren't making it to the camp. The German rations were almost inedible, padded with grass, sawdust and bone meal, or oatmeal, or barley, or whatever they could find. We used to sit around describing meals we had eaten and meals we intended to eat in the future. We dreamed of food. We argued about food. We kicked ourselves for having refused second helpings in the past. It seemed impossible to read a book without coming across a mention of food. Sometimes we would try not to think about eating, but this was about as effective as deciding not to think about the pain when having a tooth drilled by some particularly sadistic dentist. I love that we keep saying, like, that's illegal, and it's like, they're the Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not cricket. Yeah. So the camp also developed a trading system based around the jams and preserves that did sometimes come out of the Red Cross parcels when they got them, and the icon of most prison and prisoner of war films of the last 80s, the cigarette. But in this part of Roberta's book, it's all about the food. One or two prisoners became interested in cooking and were very adept at producing wonderful dishes out of the oddest ingredients. Their efforts were rather wasted because we were so hungry that it did not matter how the food was cooked or served. We had no difficulty whatsoever in eating raw potato peelings. Of course, the Americans got the best of it. Remember, America's shown up late, so they have more resources, they mm-hmm. have more money, they have mm-hmm. more industry to provide for their soldiers. Yeah. So sometimes the Americans would get these tins of a creamy milk powder called Klim, which I think is kind of like condensed milk and sustagen oh, kind of mixed okay. together. Yeah. So they would make something called Glop out That's of it. That's a bad name. It just sounds... Because they're all men in a camp. They're like, let's call it Glop. <laughs> um, and I think it's just basically like, whatever you have that would vaguely go in the tin, mix it up, eat it. Yep. Um, it was even possible, though, if you saved and scrimped and traded, you could make a very sticky puddingy cake. They couldn't get flour, but they could sometimes get biscuits out of the Red Cross parcel, oh. so you crush them up yep. and use them as flour. Yep. So the Klim Tins the Klim tins were also the prize. With nothing else to do in the camp, many men took to making gadgets out of them, and one man even made a clock. Um, some would play cards, some would read. Roberta found one group very discomforting. They would pace endlessly up and down the camp boundaries, unable to sit still, often formulating escape plans that would never come to fruition. And there was another group that Roberta named the Spiritualists. They had the most impressive seances. They were very unpopular indeed in their hut. That's perhaps the weirdest part. Yeah, so I want to actually wait. Um, there's two weird stories here, and I don't want you to read them until we're recording this. So you haven't seen these before. I haven't seen these. So one's very funny and one's not. Do you want funny first or last? It's about to get really dark. Okay, let's start with dark and then go funny because okay. we're going to go dark again. All right, so not funny is... So two men were sharing a cabin in the camp, and one of them had been a prisoner of war for like, years, for almost the entire war. And the other had only been shot down recently and had been taken prisoner because he was an airman, taken to the same camp. Um, they were talking, and they realised they were both married to the same woman <gasps> who had assumed the first man dead. <gasps> and the newcomer went out the next morning during exercises, and he touched the fence wire around the camp, and the guards shot him, Ooh. and they killed him. That is tough. That's really fucking tough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then the funny one is... <laughs> isn't funny in comparison. Sorry, guys. At one point, they decided to liven up the camp, so all the prisoners started making weird-looking hats to wear (laughs) everywhere. So there'd just be stuff sticking out of it, like bits of tin and, like, grass they could find. And um, some men grew out absolutely massive beards and mustaches to keep warm, but they often also shave their heads to avoid life. So they just were given these giant beards and, like, weird hats on. I love that. Yeah. I love that. All right, let's get dark. Okay. The food situation kept getting worse. One morning, someone found pieces of broken glass in his bread ration, in addition to the usual sawdust. Everyone carefully inspected their own slices, and more glass was found. 
The men complained to the guards, and it transpired the baker, a German, had lost family members in an Allied bombing of Hamburg. In his anger, he'd put glass in the food. He refused to say how long he'd been doing it and kept his position because he promised not to do it again. And then... At one period, we had no Red Cross parcels at all, and all the cats in the camp vanished, never to return. We ate them. Unfortunately, we had no fuel either, so they had to be eaten raw. But there is very little that you cannot eat if you are hungry enough. That quote is raw. Raw as a cat in a prisoner of war camp. I mean, the weird thing about that line in the book, it's followed up by a little anecdote about an officer who was like, when I get home, I'll be able to tell the family I ate a cat. And it's really hard not to read it as like anything but bravado. Mm, like, ha, it was fine. It wasn't awful. It was It was fine. really funny. It was, uh, it was hilarious. Laugh, laugh, guys. Like, it's that difference between like not talking about it or talking about it in like, this is fine. It's fine. Yeah. Kind of way. Um, so it's like, this is really fucking awful. But let's focus on any humor we can wring mm-hmm. out of the situation. So one last thing before liberation, spoilers, situational homosexuality. Um, there was a saying in the camp, home by Christmas or homo by Easter. Um, we discussed situational <laughs> sexuality in our episode on the night witches. Roberta was repulsed by the idea of being thought homosexual or feminine in any way. Wonder why. In hindsight, Roberta reflected this was a big hint about her true nature. In her biography, Roberta's discussion of the gay men in the camp, however, does belie a sense of, oh, yeah, they were there too. It's totally normal. However, whenever one of the homosexuals in the camp assumed Roberta was gay too, he was highly offended. There were also occasional plays put on in the camp for prisoner entertainment. Roberta was sometimes asked to play a female role, which he always outright refused. She was still, in her later words, clinging to her masculinity. One day, while out for a turn in the prison yard, a man approached Roberta and took hold of his arm. Roberta was like, the fuck, dude? And the man apologised and said he thought Roberta was gay, like him. The man in question had been a prisoner for over four years and had escaped multiple times, but had obviously always been recaptured. He was gay, but had married a woman back home and they had a child together. Despite the awkwardness of their original meeting, he and Roberta became friends, and Roberta in her biography specified that they were always platonic. So this was another moment in the biography. I was like, I feel like she's saying that she's like, we were friends! And it's like, okay... That's fine. Yeah. Um, so there's a few moments, as we said earlier, in Roberta's biography where she makes these claims that are either questionable or outright scientifically impossible. So in the 70s, Roberta claimed not to be trans but intersex with a particular condition called XX male syndrome, a.k.a. De La Chapelle syndrome. Now, we're not like, I'm not trying to pathologise intersex people here or anything, mm. and she might well have been intersex in a way, but people who have De La Chapelle syndrome can't have children. They're sterile. Because it's only appeasing people with, like, penises. Mm-hmm. But they're sterile. Yep. And so Roberta had two biological children with her wife, mm. which means she wasn't sterile, yep. which is fine. She might have had a different intersex um, condition that we haven't even now identified. Yep. Um, but it just makes me kind of suspicious at the same time. Yeah. That's it. The intersexuality stuff um, will be more relevant in the second part of this episode because, well, I'm giving it its own space because it's a complicated issue that deserves its own time and its own yes. respect. Yep, definitely. But yeah, I um like I just like to check in that she's always like we don't know, but the, she's like we were just really good friends, and it's like Roberta, it's okay, yeah, it's okay, Roberta, and we can't ask this man for reasons we're about to find out. All right, so you know who knows. Regardless of the true nature of their relationship, Roberta and this dude had a lot in common, and he soon moved into Roberta's prison hut. The dude seemed relatively balanced and sensical, which made his announcement one day very very odd. One day, without preamble. The man. We need to give this guy a name. Yeah, he's not named in Roberta's book. Um, we can call him Bill after Bill Brand, who was a patient of John Cade, who also had a very unhappy end. Okay. 
Well, Bill said to Roberta, I'm going to die on April 18th. This greatly distressed Roberta, as he wasn't the kind of man who made jokes about that kind of thing. He wasn't going to kill himself, he was just going to die. It was a long while before I went to sleep on the night of the 17th, and I woke very early next morning. The shutters were open, and across the room I could see him, lying in his top bunk on a thin straw palliasse, with his one threadbare blanket over him. He seemed to be breathing, though, and I thought I had been really stupid to worry about him. The other occupants of the room woke up and gazed inquiringly at me. I gave him the thumbs up sign, and they seemed relieved. The figure in the top bunk still lay peacefully, and then suddenly sat up. For a moment it was impossible to realise what had happened. He was not dead, but he might just as well have been. His soul had left his body, but the body still lived. He was raving mad. Paranoia. Though we can't retrospectively diagnose people, the conditions of the camp, isolation, cold and malnutrition, are not conducive to one's mental health. Add on the trauma of years of war and imprisonment, the experience of multiple escapes and captures, it's no wonder that some men suffered what we would probably call psychotic breaks. Things were getting worse for the men in the camp. Food supplies had all but dried up, and the guards became crueler. They were starving, and there was the constant sound of bombing in the distance. Then there was the question, would the bombs hit the camp? But that is where we're going to leave Roberta. All the airmen stuck in Starlight looked one, starving and cold, another one of their companions losing his mind overnight to the wartime pressure. It's April 18th, 1945. Is that really where we're going to leave it? Yes! Um, well, spoilers, we know Roberta lives. Um, thank you to Erin <laughs> for providing the voice of Roberta. We will see you next time on Women of War, or rather, hear you all. No, no, you'll hear us. Yes. We'll, ca- you'll, we'll feel your caressing ears. We would love to hear you uh, segue if you would like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and more people can find us and hear us. Or if you want to talk to us on the Twitter sphere, Instagram sphere, Facebook sphere, smoke signal sphere. We would love to hear whether you like what we're doing, whether you hate what we're doing. Put my number on a bathroom wall. It's fine. I got Bumble. It's fucking shit. Let's just try that instead. (laughs) (laughs) So reach out to us. Say hello. We love hearing from you. Um, Thank you for everyone for listening. And tune in in a fortnight because we have part two coming of Roberta Cowell's story. Thank you for listening. See you next time. See you next time.